And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. Here he is, Michael Savage. Before we begin our interview with Joel Pollack, I just got a call from my friend Dan Horowitz, great criminal defense attorney who's represented many of the most important cases in America. He is a white collar defense attorney. He knows how this works. He has worked both in state and federal courts for over 25 years. Here is what Dan has to say about what's actually going on in the mind of this very dangerous Georgia D.A. Dan, go ahead, please. What's going on is that by indicting 19 Trump related people, 10 of them are going to run to the prosecutor and beg to tell their stories and beg to turn against Trump as witnesses. And they're going to sit in a little room for hours saying everything bad they can against Trump so that the Georgia prosecutor pats him on the head and says, good boy, good girl. Okay, I'll drop charges against you. And now you're a state's witness. That evidence will then be given to the federal prosecutor who kept the case simple um, for obvious reasons. So it goes to trial quickly. But all of a sudden, 10 witnesses who would have been very tepid if called to the stand now spilled their guts to, to implicate Trump to get themselves out of trouble. So the Georgia case is really a partner to the federal case. And they're probably working together um, either directly or through intermediaries to do exactly that. It's this fishing expedition to get great witnesses against Trump. Um, and, that's, and, and they're going to succeed. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Middle East on the brink. North Korea on the brink. Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, gold Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989-898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989-898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989 with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989-898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. This is coming from crack white collar criminal defense attorney and my good friend, Daniel Horowitz, who believes that the entire Georgia case is simply to try to get all of these close associates of Donald J. Trump to fundamentally flip on him to avoid being prosecuted themselves. Is that correct, Dan? That's 100 percent correct. 
Very sad day in American history. Let's hope that they have nothing to disclose. Let's hope they weren't trying to make up votes. I mean, uh, that's what she's fishing to say they did. And she's fishing to take gray areas where the, the conduct could be innocent or guilty, depending on how you spin it. And she's looking to have them spin it very negatively toward Trump. Um, and and that's, that gray area is, is where cooperating witnesses who are intelligent, like these people are, can be extremely dangerous because to save themselves, they will think it through and do it really well. Dan, I don't know what to say other than I hope you're wrong, but you never are. All right, we just spoke with a criminal defense attorney, and he's a white-collar criminal defense attorney at that. He's handled cases of every kind at every level. This is my attorney, Dan Horowitz. And I'm now going to bring you my conversation with Joel Pollack. Now, Joel is the senior editor-at-large at Breitbart News, and just as importantly, he's a Harvard Law alum. He knows the law. Joel offers a top legal analysis of the Georgia indictment, its significance, and what he thinks might happen next. Only on the Savage Podcast do you get two brilliant legal experts on this situation. Let's listen now. My friend, my friend, what a time we're living in, Joel. Welcome to the greatest <laughs> podcast on earth. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thanks. Same here, Joel. I, look, I follow your articles. They're brilliant. I mean, you really put a lot of work into your articles. And I, I did a preview to our interview before you came on, you know, referring to you and it. But something interesting happened. My friend Dan Horowitz called me 10 minutes ago. He's a very important criminal defense attorney. He does white collar crime. Dan has been in and out of federal and state courts his whole life. He said to me, and I just tweeted this, Joel, for your for your opinion, because it's kind of alarming. <laughs> I tweeted this, Joel. I said, real criminal defense attorney Dan Horowitz told me the other defendants in Georgia case will flip on T to avoid prosecution. More to come on my Friday podcast. So I said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean flip on T? He said, they'll make stuff up to avoid being prosecuted. Some of them, the weakest ones are liable to make stuff up saying there was a conspiracy in order to avoid being prosecuted. What do you think? It could happen. I mean, that's, that is sometimes what, what happens. It's a big criticism of the system that they could offer a deal to some of the defendants and they could flip on Trump. I mean, everything they say will still be subject to cross-examination and so forth, but they could adopt the attitude that the prosecutor wants them to adopt. So, mm. you know, you've got some of these attorneys who are described as having reserved a room in a state legislature for a hearing, and that's the act in furtherance of a conspiracy. Unbelievable. You know, so it's not a crime, but they might flip and then say, well, I reserved this room because I knew that Trump was going to do this fraudulent thing and I wanted to be helpful. So I didn't, you know, they'll, they won't charge that person with a crime, but they'll they'll confirm the narrative of the overall indictment. I, I should remind the listeners, Joel, that you are a graduate of Harvard Law School, correct? Yes, sir. Well, that's a big deal. You know, my deceased father-in-law was a Harvard Law graduate before World War II, when Harvard really meant something. As when you went to Harvard Law, it really meant something. Today, we have prosecutors like this who are invited to Harvard Law School. 
who can't even pass a bar exam and they become a district attorneys. Well, you know, what I learned at Harvard Law School, and I, I don't want to, you know, people often want me to disparage the school and I don't do it because for all of the nuttiness that I encountered there, there were still a number of professors, even on the other side politically, who were open to a good argument and who enjoyed having a contrary point of view. So I've never really been able to write the whole place off, even though good. sometimes I've been angry at what they're saying. But the thing I, I learned when I was there, in addition to the law, was that many of the people who go there and teach there believe that the fact that they're associated with Harvard Law School gives them the right to rule. There's a kind of mm. uh, feeling that they deserve to run the country. Mm -hmm. And some of the people who come through there, again, not all, some don't share that spirit of collegiality. It's often not the people you might expect. Uh, there was a guy who died recently, Charles Ogletree, and he was my professor for trial advocacy. He was basically very, 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 very important name. And he was a big civil rights attorney. He was also a mentor to Barack and Michelle Obama. Mm -hmm. And you'd think that he would fit the profile of a woke professor. And in many ways, he was a woke professor. He argued for reparations and that sort of thing. But he also honored the other side of the argument. And he never cracked down on conservative students or dismissed mm -hmm. their views. Uh, when I was volunteering on a Republican campaign, I encountered him. In fact, I was a volunteer speechwriter on the McCain campaign while I was at law school. And I saw him in Washington where he had just come from debate prep with Barack Obama. And we wow. kind of joked about it that we were on other sides. But he would never mark your grades differently based on your opinions. He was he was an old school lawyer who would grade you based on your understanding of the law and the techniques you used rather than the substance of the argument or what your views were on particular issues. So he was really old school in that sense. And he was great, really great. Then there were others. There was a constitutional law professor I had who wouldn't entertain questions or challenges on some of the things uh -huh. she was saying, for example, on affirmative action. She was arguing for positions that I, I now think have been found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But when I tried to raise some of those objections in class, mm -hmm. she wouldn't answer my question. So I just stopped going to class. <laughs> and I came back and I passed the final exam, you know, but th that sort of thing did happen as well. And all of those, not all, but many of those people are deeply connected to the Department of Justice, to various government agencies, and they form networks and they hire each other, recommend each other, refer mm -hmm. each other, appoint each other to different things. And, and they form a kind of network that runs America. And many of them have a kind of ideological conformity. I'll give you another example. Um, I was taking a course on evidence in my final year and happened to be the year of the 2008 election. And the professor brought up an example of character evidence, which is usually inadmissible in a, in a uh, criminal trial. And the example he brought up was something disparaging John McCain and you know, it was some bit of fake news that I recognized was fake. I can't remember exactly what it was offhand, but um, I challenged him and I said, why don't you bring up such and such from Obama's background? You know, why don't you why don't you present both of these examples? And he wouldn't do it. He refused. So I quietly packed my books up and I left the class. Now, I did it in the least disruptive way I could. You know, I, I had a seat in the front row, so I didn't walk in front of the professor because I didn't want to seem disrespectful to him in a personal kind of way. I felt that would be 
you know, kind of confrontational. So I walked out the back, you know, going down toward the side so that I left. It was clear I was leaving, but I didn't want to throw a tantrum. You know, I just was leaving in protest. And then he wrote to me later and he apologized and and so forth. But, um, you know, other students remembered that. And later on, when I got involved politically in a personal way in Republican politics, people would post messages and things like that on the internet saying, oh, this guy stormed out of, you know, evidence class. I mean, people were noticing. So so these these networks, these left-wing networks, they form at these Ivy League institutions. They persist. Uh, you know, when I went back to my college reunion, I also went to college at Harvard. I went back to my college reunion last time. I was pretty much the only conservative student, one of the few who came back. There were more conservatives in my year in, in the 1999 class that I graduated from, but they didn't come back because they're ostracized. And well, I never went back to Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know that, you know, the drill. I mean, Berkeley, the home of the free speech movement. And now they're the home of uh, censorship and rioting. Savage. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? But, you know, here's the thing. What you just said is interesting. For example, I'm having lunch today with two professors in a field of botany from Berkeley. They're apolitical. I never talk politics with them. I only talk about plants. There are still hardcore great scientists at UC Berkeley. It's for people you can't write off a whole university based upon a small um, cadre of people who seem to run the place. But, you know, as you were speaking about those who think they have the right to run things, lawyers, what came to my mind was the Supreme Court of Israel, which I know we could talk about. But to me, that's exactly what's going on. You have this elite group, the Sanhedrin in Israel, the Supreme Court, that got used to running the nation as the final arbiters. They don't want a balance of power. Would you say that that's somewhat what's going on in Israel? It's very similar, and it's not a coincidence, because many of Israel's radical legal scholars and attorneys do their training at Harvard. Oh, goodness. They do they do some of their work in Israel, then they come to Harvard for a year for the LLM degree or something, and they're exposed to ideas like critical legal theory, and then they go back to Israel, and they implement those ideas there. And with the Harvard degree, everybody takes them more seriously. So that is what happens. I mean, Harvard is not just training America's elite, but training Israel's oh. and other do you still have the same? You know, I, I heard you twice, Joe. One thing I still have is a very acute sense of ears. Actually, everything's still acute. Uh, I'm still quite young, but I heard you say that you worked on the McCain campaign twice. Now, you know, he's a controversial figure today. Were, were your views different at the end of his tenure as a senator that they were when you first worked for him? Yes, I wasn't that involved in Republican politics until that point. In many ways, the McCain campaign was my entry point into Republican politics because I had gone through a transition ideologically. And I volunteered for the McCain campaign partly because he was a moderate and I was a Democrat becoming a Republican. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, he was the gateway to a lot of things. 
And when I told people I was working for him, some of my newfound conservative friends would roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, we got stuck with this nominee. And I didn't quite get that at the time. But as I learned more about his career, I understood why they were skeptical. Even so, I thought he brought some good things to American politics, even as late as that. And if you look at his speech to CPAC in 2008, there's a very, very important acknowledgement that he makes that I think ought to be brought up more often, which is that Republicans and Democrats had tried to pass immigration reform and they had failed again and again. And what McCain acknowledged was that border security had to come before any other kind of reform. And that was the deal he made with conservative voters when he was pitching for their votes at CPAC. And I think that's very important because nobody on the Republican side had tried harder to pass immigration reform or amnesty, as we call it, to uh, than John McCain. But he acknowledged in that speech that the American public didn't want that. They wanted border security first, and then they could talk about other options. So I think he brought some positive things. Unfortunately, in his last year's First of all, I think he should have retired. I, I think many of these senators should retire. And uh, let, you mean because of the of the loss of uh, mental acuity? Yeah, or or just you know they're not necessarily representing their states anymore. I mean, McCain became a creature of Washington more than Arizona. Now you take a guy like Chuck Grassley, who's very sharp and who seems very connected to Iowa, and he's an exception. So I'm not sure I would impose a blanket. He's a great guy. He's a, he's a very how old is he? He's about 138. <laughs> Is that his body temperature or is it his age? Joel, let's get down to Trump because your articles are astounding. So apparently, according to your article, things that are now illegal in America are tweeting that you're watching TV, reserving rooms for meetings, asking someone for a phone number. Uh, how in the world is this going to play out in a court, in your opinion? Well, we're already seeing it. So Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, has already moved for the indictment, at least against him, to be removed to federal court because he says the conduct that he engaged in, like asking for a phone number, is not independently criminal. And everything he did as a part of a so-called conspiracy, he did because he was employed at the White House and he was working for the president. And as such, he would be covered by the Constitution and the separation of powers, meaning that you can't try him for carrying out presidential instructions, certainly not in a state court. So he's already asked for this to be removed to federal court. I'm not sure how that will affect the other defendants, but he has a very good point. A lot of what is alleged in this indictment, even the things that are a little more serious than just asking for a phone number, are things that happened in other states, not Georgia. For example, the indictment talks about a hearing in Pennsylvania. And I remember those hearings because I watched those hearings where people were invited to come and talk about voting irregularities. There was nothing criminal about those hearings. They were public. They weren't official hearings of the legislature, even if they were held in the legislature, but they were held with witnesses and questions from legislators. There was nothing below the table about them. They were completely above board. Yet that is described as part of a criminal conspiracy. And it's not in Georgia. It has nothing to do with Georgia. So this belongs in federal court, perhaps. And I, I think that's that's what you might see some motions trying to do. In addition, you could see President Trump move to quash the entire indictment in federal court because he'll argue that he is immune from prosecution for actions taken in furtherance of his presidential duties. And the Democrats will rip their hair out and say, how is asking the Georgia Secretary of State to look for voter fraud part of his presidential duty? Well, 
He is the chief executive officer of the country, and under the Electoral Count Act of 1887 and other legislation, he's responsible for making sure that elections are properly administered. So there's nothing illegal about calling any state official and asking them about voter fraud. So he can argue, and at that stage, they can appeal all the way to the Supreme Court before the trial even takes place, that this entire thing should be thrown out because it's a violation of the separation of powers. It has no being in a Georgia court. Joel, who will he be arguing this to? Who will Trump's attorneys be arguing to move at the federal court? Don't they have to argue that before the, the Georgia kangaroo court? Correct. And we don't know much about this judge yet. The prosecutor obviously is a piece of work. She was reprimanded by a judge last year for fundraising for the Democratic opponent of one of the Republicans that she was supposedly investigating. Oh, boy. He has. No, no. Not- she, isn't she the daughter of a black black panther? Yes, apparently she is quite proud of that background, and apparently her name has something to do with that and all of that. And look, your gun doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> look, you know, there are there are kids who are sons of radicals, daughters of radicals who have different politics. I mean, you can't you can't judge a person by their by their parents. But <laughs> oh, no, in, in some cases we can. Well, I look, I think I think she's embraced that legacy. OK, okay. and. We, we agree on that for sure. I mean, everything that comes out of that woman's uh, uh, mouth seems like it's uh, H-Rap Brown. Well, here's the deal. Why have an indictment unveiled at quarter to midnight on a Monday? I don't know. What was that about? That's about the drama. That's about adding a sense of urgency to these charges. You know, they've sat on this for more than two years, but now all of a sudden they've got to do it at a quarter to 12 on a Monday. And it also adds for critics, to the illegitimacy of the whole thing. It's yet another late night decision in Fulton County. Remember, that's where people were waiting for these mail-in ballots to be counted. And there was oh my a God. shutting it down and so forth. I mean, the whole thing lends itself to a circus atmosphere. But from her perspective, it's about urgency and it's about drama. And the more noise she can create about the indictment, the better. In fact, they uploaded an early version of the indictment to the county courthouse website before taking it down. And there are those who've argued that that violated Trump's due process and therefore they could quash the entire indictment on that basis. She leaked the grand jury um, opinion or testimony or uh, findings. List of charges, the list of charges. So what happened was Reuters was sitting on the court website hitting refresh, I guess, and they saw this document pop up. So they reported that the indictment had been filed. And then the Georgia attorney's office said, no, 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 there's no indictment. There's no indictment. So Reuters was under pressure then to retract its story. And then they looked into it and found, well, actually, they did upload something. We weren't making it up. It wasn't our imaginations. We even got it right here. We, we downloaded it off the website. Here it is. It's a list of charges. So then the Fulton County officials said, oh, well, it was inadvertent or it was a fabrication. It wasn't a real document. But then when the real indictment came out several hours later, it looked almost the same as the document that Reuters had pulled off the website. So then the next day, the Fulton County authorities said, well, it was a sample document that was uploaded inadvertently. So their story kept changing. Fannie Willis, the district attorney, was asked about it at this press conference on the indictment. She professed to know nothing about the procedures. And the whole thing looks like it was set up in advance to make sure that this indictment was. The grand jury was basically a, a, a kangaroo court jury. And she told them what to what to find in this document. And they, they rubber stamped it, sort of. 
worse than that. It's worse than that. And actually, I joked at the time that because she uploaded the indictment before they had voted on the indictment, she was guilty of committing voter fraud. <laughs> but the other problem and the reason it's worse is that before this grand jury, which met in all of a day, there was another grand jury, apparently called a special grand jury, and they didn't have a prosecutorial role. They had a merely investigative role. And they met for a couple of years. They came out with their report in February this year. Now, the public was not allowed to see it except for a few pages. Mm. Fannie Willis then took that report and used that as the basis for further investigation to the grand jury that was empowered to bring charges against the president and all these other people. And the Trump legal team tried to quash this special grand jury report many times, especially because the forewoman of that special grand jury did a media tour afterward and talked about how much interest there was in getting Trump. Oh, Jesus. So, so the whole thing has been a political exercise from the beginning. Of course. Yeah, but look, we both see it for what it is. And so can all intelligent Americans who are somewhat objective. 18 co-defendants. They've got 19 people. It looks like the kind of opposition trial you have in third world countries where they put dozens of people in the dock at once for opposing the government. So you and I recognize that because, you know, when you go to Harvard and Berkeley, you learn a lot about third world liberation movements. They're held <laughs> to follow. And here we have the district attorney and, you know, maybe the political background is relevant here, you know, doing what dictatorships, left wing dictatorships and right wing dictatorships have done all over the world. Look, we both know what's going on here. We know it's a, a far more than a far left radical judge. I call her a revolutionary, a black revolutionary, which is what she is. And she's entitled to be that. However, that is tainting this entire case. But how is Trump's attorneys, whoever may be left now, who, who's actually who are his attorneys after all of this? Do we know? We do. There are several of them. He's got a team. And uh, I could rattle their names off to you if I could flip on my computer and see all the different statements they've released. But they're they're relatively new. There's a, a woman yeah. named Habba. I forget her. Yeah, I met her. I met her at Mar-a-Lago about two, three months ago. Right. And, and there are others. And some of his attorneys have left for various reasons. Uh, I know Jim Trusty. Uh, you know, people people have left for, for, for different reasons. Um, some of them have to do with conflict. Some of them have to do with other things. The Trump th this this gets into another one of the indictments. Trump wanted to be able to get volunteer attorneys to help him. Now, you might say, why does he need volunteers? Well, the mountain of evidence that's come out in some of these cases, like, for example, the January 6th case that was filed or the document case, millions and millions and millions of documents, you need more than three or four attorneys to go through these documents to see the evidence. And Trump wants to be able to use pro bono attorneys who aren't going to charge him a thousand dollars an hour to go through millions of pages of evidence. You know, if you're a law student at Harvard, you can get credit for doing pro bono legal work. Or if you're at one of these high powered law firms, they love when their lawyers do pro bono legal work. In fact, that that was an issue that came up early in the Obama administration when Obama was appointing attorneys who had done pro bono legal work for terrorist defendants at Guantanamo Bay. It's considered praiseworthy to take a terrorist and defend them for free. But, you know, if you try to defend a Republican or a conservative, they don't like that. So Trump's attorneys wanted the D.C. judge, I think it was, to allow them broader scope to share the evidence with 
pro bono attorneys, and the judge turned that down. The judge would not let Trump expand his legal team to include volunteers as well as the paid lawyers. You might think, well, you know, he's got billions of dollars. Why does he need volunteers? They want to bankrupt him through all these indictments. They want to bankrupt him and force him to divert money from his campaign and his other activities. So this is an attempt to ruin him financially as well as politically. How about medically? You know, he's 77 years old. Right. He eats like uh, there's no relationship between diet and health, which is absurd. He's one of those people I call a nutritional rogue. I've met them in my life. I'm not one of them. I watch everything I put in my mouth and a half of years, but he doesn't eat hamburgers, French fries, hot dogs. I eat with him. How much can a man take? How many different uh, assaults can any individual take? I mean, objectively, can he take this? Do you think? I don't know. I think that it would be very hard for anybody. Certainly people have collapsed under far fewer charges and but he does seem to be the kind of person who thrives on adversity thrives on on attacks so very odd personality there's an american archetype in there i think it's what draws people to him even if they don't necessarily Uh, think he does is right they're they're drawn to the lone individual who stands out on a frontier mm -hmm. and and that's what he's doing savage The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Can can Donald Trump continue his campaign while fighting the attacks, sustaining the attacks? Yes and no. Yes, because I think that his support has continued to grow as he's been indicted. So in a sense, the indictments are doing some of the campaigning for him. Oh, wow. But but no, in the sense that, for example, What happens if Trump decides that he's not going to show up in Georgia by August 25th? That's what I was wondering. Why does he have to go? What if he doesn't show up? Right. So then they'll issue a warrant for his arrest and won't be able to enforce it, presumably outside of Georgia. Really? God. So then he can avoid Georgia if he wants to avoid traveling to Georgia. That's probably pretty easy to do except that Georgia is a swing state in the 2024 election. So that means he can't have rallies in Georgia. He can't campaign in Georgia. He can't endorse other candidates in Georgia, go to Georgia to do rallies. So it is affecting his ability to campaign. And that's before you even get to the amount of time he's going to have to be in court. They want him to attend these uh, criminal proceedings. He's going to have to spend time in the courtroom and not on the campaign trail. Okay. But he's now being cut off from states if they issue arrest warrants. So, you know, it's, and who knows, maybe the, the judge in one of these cases will decide that he's violated some pretrial condition of release because he puts a post up on Truth Social that they don't like and they'll order his imprisonment. So, yeah, yeah, he's constantly at risk. Once he's indicted criminally, he's at constant risk of being put behind bars and being unable to campaign. Oh, my God. They, the, the, the devil's advocate position is, well, we can't let people declare themselves presidential candidates to avoid indictment for crimes. But you look at these crimes, they're not really crimes. They're process crimes, if that, they involve documents, moving boxes from one place to another, a phone call here and there. Nobody's actually come out and said that Donald Trump violated a clearly pre-existing law where the lines were clear. I mean, nobody ever thought of applying a racketeering law no. to a presidential campaign because- They come out, who, who came up with Rico and put it in Fanny's head? Here's a woman who no doubt knows real murderers in, in uh Georgia, who she's probably been very soft on or, or homicide cases. I, I don't understand how they can bring Rico, a Rico statute against Trump. I don't get it. Well, 
a lot of state and local prosecutors do use it. So maybe she's familiar with its use, but mm-hmm. a lot of ideas come from the legal academy. When the worst ideas came out during the Trump impeachments, for example, often they were getting fed their ideas by one of my former professors, Lawrence Tribe. He, for example, came up with the strategy of Nancy Pelosi rushing the impeachment through Congress, the first impeachment in 2019, and then holding on to it for so many weeks because Mitch McConnell said that this impeachment is dead on arrival in the Senate. We're not going to remove him from office. So they wanted to hold this impeachment over Trump as long as possible to give the Senate time to change its mind or something. So that was Lawrence Tribe's strategy. He said, well, just because you've impeached him doesn't mean you deliver the articles of impeachment. So she went from saying, this is urgent. We got to do it right away to then sitting on it for a month. So a lot of those crazy ideas come from Lawrence Tribe and other legal scholars. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of that were at work here. But Mm. some of it comes from news commentary. The Georgia indictment was kicked off by reporting in the Washington Post in January 2021 about this phone call with Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state. And the report was that Trump told Raffensperger to find the votes he needed to win. But if you look at the full context of the quote, it's clear Trump believed he had actually won the state. And what he was actually saying was, I just want to find the votes necessary to prove that I don't need you to produce all of the million votes that I think. And Fanny is arguing that he was saying make up the votes. Right. And that's how it was reported throughout the media. So in essence, fake news triggered this indictment. So a lot of these ideas trickle through the left wing media, the left wing legal academy, and they get borrowed by these prosecutors and they show up. They showed up, for example, at the second impeachment trial. That's where the Democrats introduced another Washington Post story similar about a phone call with Georgia officials. And later, the Post had to correct its story because they got the quote wrong. But Democrats used the wrong quote in the trial. So, so these things all feed on each other. They're the prosecutors who are involved with the media, who are involved with the Democratic Party, who are involved with the law schools. And we've got this set of elite institutions that lives within this bubble and they reinforce each other with some of these ideas and some of even some of the evidence furnished at some of these grand juries. Joel, I'm going to your great website, Breitbart.com, which I look at every day. And your lead article today is Danger Trump Faces Pardon Proof Majority in Georgia. What's that about? So unlike other states, the governor of Georgia does not have the power unilaterally to pardon people. And they have a system where you have to apply to a parole board for a pardon. And the parole board has five members who are appointed by the governor for seven-year terms. They're approved by the state Senate. And you can't apply until you've already served five years of your sentence. So you can't be pardoned upon conviction, even if there's a miscarriage of justice. Now, Trump could get the state legislature to change that. Problem is that You need two thirds of the state legislature to propose a constitutional amendment before you put it before a majority of the Georgia voters for ratification. That's the pardon proof majority. It's going to be very difficult for Trump to get to two thirds of the state legislature. Republicans don't even have two thirds of either house of the state legislature. But even if they did, Georgia has a lot of never Trump Republicans, as evidenced by Brian Kemp, the governor, and Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state. And they certainly have allies in the legislature. So this is not going to happen. He's not going to be able to change the rules. And so it's a pardon proof majority in Georgia. There's the argument out there that maybe if Trump is elected president, he can pardon himself even on state charges. That's a long shot. That's a real long shot. Huge long shot. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at the Drudge Report, (laughs) our old friend, Matt, who's taken a different turn politically. And his headlines are this 34 year old judge assigned Rico case has been on bench for six months. That's right. (laughs) Who is the judge? 
You know, I haven't done a lot of uh, digging into his background, but yeah, he's a he's a new judge and people weren't too impressed on Monday night when the judge was joking around with reporters. I think maybe the judge is a little nervous, maybe didn't expect to have this high profile case. You know, you can be certain that more people will be looking at the judge's background as we go forward. But look, this is what happens in, in county court. We're talking about a county court system that's trying a case that has national implications. It's probably the wrong venue. I mean, just reading the indictment, how are you going to get a county judge to judge actions that are alleged to have taken place in a different state like Pennsylvania or national statements, things that were done in Washington, D.C. to the vice president or said to the vice president? I mean, it makes no sense. When you read this indictment, what you realize is that it is the fruit of that special grand jury and the special grand jury, because they weren't preparing for a criminal trial, but just kind of making recommendations. They pulled in all of this propaganda and all of these different accusations against Trump, and they put it all in one place. And that has guided the new official indictment. So they've got all kinds of stuff in there that just doesn't belong. It's possible, you know, Governor Chris Christie, who has been very tough on Trump, made an interesting comment after the indictment came out. And he said it it was unnecessary because it repeated a lot of the federal charges. But he also said, and again, he's not a fan of Trump, and I also think there are some reasons to question as to why he's even in the the presidential race, if it's not just to give problems to Trump. But he said the prosecutor, Fannie Willis, was acting out of ego, even more than partisanship, because he or she had worked on this for two years. And then Jack Smith, special counsel in Washington, swoops in, gets all the headlines, gets all the attention in the media. So she's almost saying, wait, wait, I'm over here in Georgia. We are doing this other thing. And so she may have rushed this through, hence the midnight briefing. And she wants her share of the limelight. So that could be why this is, in many ways, a very sloppy indictment. Joel, you pointed out that both Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams have made similar claims to Trump, claiming that there was election fraud, no legal recourse. How is this different in, in the mind of the prosecutor? So the difference with Stacey Abrams, this is the argument I've heard. I don't think it's different at all. Yes. But what are what 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 twisted argument is she making? Well, the argument that is made she doesn't actually come out and say it, but her defenders will say, well, they never indicted Stacey Abrams, even though it would have been in the state of Georgia. So it's the right place to bring an indictment. Is that Stacey Abrams never tried to influence the counting of votes and she never talked to officials about what they should do and they so on. That is an interesting argument. It's also completely ridiculous because you're talking about the difference between a state election and a federal election. I mean, you don't try to prepare an alternate state of electors, which is mentioned in this indictment, in a state election. There's no electoral college in the state of Georgia that votes for Georgia officials. So you're not adding anything by saying, well, she didn't do X and Y that Trump did when he was trying to get the votes he needed to become president. Mm -hmm. The conduct is exactly the same. And where this indictment really goes wrong is that it includes many things that are ordinarily protected political speech. It talks about tweets Trump made about turning on the television. It talks about speeches he gave, about things that were said at hearings. How could that be a charge? I looked at them. This was out of the third world. Right. They're charging that it's part of a conspiracy to overturn the election. But by that definition, every election challenge is a conspiracy to overturn an election because it doesn't just involve Stacey Abrams. It involves Stacey Abrams. And- so we know it's it, it's specious arguments built on uh, houses of sand. But um, the appeals have to be done in the same state where they were brought. Right. And and that's how that's how it has to go. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. 
put on your crystal ball for a minute, Joel. I mean, we're far seeing men, both of us. We wouldn't be where we are in terms of our abilities to write things that people read. No one's going to read us if they think the same thing. We can think beyond them. I know we shouldn't say that. We're supposed to say we think like the average guy. But so we see ahead. What do you see coming? Well, let's take each of the indictments. So I think that the best case scenario, let me put it this way, best case and worst case scenario. Uh, The best case scenario, the New York indictment by Alvin Bragg, who ran on a promise to indict Trump, that gets dismissed because he's trying to Mm. force a federal law in state court and Mm. it's just not going to pass muster. So I think that gets tossed. Wow. That's it's not just a best case scenario. It's probably likely that that'll get tossed. Amazing. Let's go to Miami with the documents case. Oh God! There, you're going to see some very serious procedural motions that could also result in the indictment being tossed because of all this Mickey Mouse stuff that Jack Smith is doing with the grand jury. He has a grand jury meeting in Washington, D.C., but then bringing charges in Miami. You can't do that. Mm. He's doing that to get around the fact that people in Miami are a little more politically balanced. It's, it's more of an even state than they would be in D.C., where nine out of 10 jurors are going to be Democrats who hate Donald Trump. And, and that's how they got through attorney client privilege. They, they were able to get rid of attorney client privilege to look at Trump's statements to his attorney, normally not allowed at all. But Jack Smith did it in D.C. You might see the case tossed because of that. You might see the case tossed because of an apparent attempt to extort one of the co-defendants. And the lawyer for the co-defendant was allegedly offered a position on the bench if he got his client to play ball, which is probably illegal. And if that's found to have happened, then you could have the lead investigator at the Justice Department uh, charged with obstruction of justice himself because it's such an irregular thing to do. So you could see some kind of procedural motion that just kills the case in Florida. Also, the fact that the Presidential Records Act was not even mentioned in the indictment, and it arguably covers Trump's conduct. He thought he was complying with the law rather than violating the law. So I, I think there's some reason to believe that the Miami case is also vulnerable. Wait, they, have they ever shown that he stole these documents to sell them to foreign governments? I mean, that was the implication the first day. He was holding on to them to sell them or to right. do something against America. What, what, what? He never stole the documents. He never sold the documents. And this is also really important. He never destroyed the documents. Hillary Clinton destroyed federal documents that she had no right even to have. And there's another interesting fact. The January 6th committee, which investigated Trump and was told by Kevin McCarthy last year to preserve all their documents so that the next incoming Republican Congress could use them, Uh destroyed their documents. Unreal. I know I saw that. That kangaroo court infuriated me while it was. What what Trump is, 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 you know, they've done something worse than what Trump is alleged to have done. They've actually destroyed evidence. It also impacts his criminal trials because Trump in the January 6th case has the right to any evidence that might assist him in his defense, including especially official records. But the Democrats destroyed records. What they did was they said to McCarthy and to the other Republicans afterwards was, well, we destroyed things that we didn't find were, were useful to us. By useful, they meant yeah. we destroyed things that didn't support our case. Right the evidence that exonerated Trump or may have exonerated Trump. And so I think there are going to be problems in the D.C. case as well because of this destruction of evidence. Now, D.C. is is a problem only because the judge is terrible. She's a Barack Obama appointee and donor, by the way. She donated to Obama Biden back in 2008-2009. And she has already placed limits on what Trump can say about the case. She's already opined in other cases that Trump should be in jail. So how can you have a judge who already thinks Trump should be in prison 
presiding over this case. So I think that they're going to run into a problem with the venue there. I don't know if Trump will actually be jailed. Maybe there'll be some kind of appeals. But I think the chances of conviction are very high in D.C. only because Jack Smith's got this friendly judge, friendly jury, and they're going to find a way to get it done that way. Um, also, she- But then Trump will appeal it to the Supreme Court, won't he? He will. But she could order him to prison. Oh, uh, and she's already suggested that she might if he tweets or posts oh my God. that she doesn't like because oh. she conditions of his pretrial release or that he doesn't say anything about witnesses. He can't even tweet about evidence in the case. So, yeah, you know, it's it, he's he's really in a tight spot there and it's totally unjust and unjustified. But, you know, he could he could end up in, in prison even if he's not convicted as part of pretrial. So they're railroading him. We know that, Joel. Come on. They're railroading him on every different level, state, federal, you name it, in the press. Yeah, so but I, at the end of the day, is he going to get out of this? Here's how I envision things happening at the end of the day. The likeliest outcome right now, if the election were to be held today, Trump is leading in the polls. So the likeliest outcome is they will get him into prison somehow. Okay, Really? Yeah, I think they're going to get him into prison. Oh, my God. I, I would attach a 40 percent chance to this. But, you know, it's not a, it's not probable because it's not greater than 50 percent. But it's the likeliest of all the outcomes. And there are a lot of different outcomes. But let me just say a 40 percent chance. Trump is in prison, wins the election from prison. The chief justice walks to the prison, administers the oath of office, in, whereupon Trump pardons himself and walks <laughs> to the front door. Oh, my God, Joe. <laughs> I, if that happens, you, got, you know, I mean, I, I can already see it. You know, I can see it like a march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the you know, the D.C. court or the D.C. jail or wherever. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people there for Trump's inaugural marching behind the chief justice, you know, plenty of security and that kind of thing, Secret Service. And the chief justice goes into the prison and Trump takes the oath on the Bible, collects his things, puts on a suit and walks out. OK, last question. And uh, no one knows. We're just guessing. As I said earlier, he's 77 years old. He eats cheeseburgers and frankfurters. Right. No one can take endless, you know, killing by a thousand slashes. No one could take endless stress. People have died from one federal indictment, let alone this. Right. This hasn't gone on forever. So he thrives on it up to a point. What is the chance, in your opinion? I mean, I, I know the man from a distance, as you do. What is the chance of him trying to strike a deal with them where he withdraws from the race if they drop all the charges? What do you think? Could he do that? He couldn't because they'll never keep the deal. <laughs> no, they will never keep the deal. Well said. So you can't trust the Democrat. OK, I got it. <laughs> but I don't think I don't think he'll do that. I briefly considered the possibility, I must admit, even though I think it's a little bit ridiculous, but I briefly considered the possibility that he might decide, you know what, they're going to keep me in court or in jail for the rest of my life, no matter what happens, unless I win the presidency. I've got a plane. It's a short flight to Cuba, <laughs> you know, and uh, not that he is a, that kind of a person. But, you know, if you're trying to if you're looking at this injustice that's beset him on all sides, you know, people have done this for lesser charges and lesser reasons. Um, you know, so I, I don't know how this ends. I do know that it's going to have long term effects on our democracy. It already is. Oh, boy. People running around in the streets. You know, I live in L.A. and. Not too far from here, there was a mob that robbed a Nordstrom's the other day. Uh, yeah. there, there are people terrified to leave their homes in Oakland, so much so that 
even the NAACP is calling for more police, you know, three or four years. I know. And even rappers are saying in L.A. it's out of control. Even rappers. Joel, before you go, you, you have a new book. It's a biography of your South African mother-in-law, Rhoda, Comrade Katelyn. You're out of order. What is that about? My mother-in-law, Rhoda, was a civil rights leader in South Africa. She was part of the anti-apartheid movement. And she grew up in segregated South Africa and grew up on the left. And she fought to end apartheid. She was part of Nelson Mandela's administration. Was she an African woman? She, yes, she was what they called colored in, in South African parlance because she came from a mixed background. But her her grandfather, Clements Kadali, was the first black trade unionist in South Africa. So she okay. came long line of left-wing activists. Although interestingly, he was not a communist. He threw the communists out of his union. So there was a precedent in her family for taking on the radical left. But basically, as she came to understand how the new South African government worked, she began to dissent more and more publicly. And she made her own political transition from left to right. And when she passed away last year from lung cancer, she was by then a diehard Trump supporter. Savage. Michael Savage, a host like no other. So this is a biography about your South African mother-in-law, Rhoda. Right. Comrade Katelyn, you're out of order. What does that mean? So she was often told when she would go to these meetings. Of oh, you know, comrade, you're out of order. They All the other communists would say you're out of order for not being towing the party line. Correct. And that's what she became known for was standing up in meetings and calling out corruption and mismanagement. And they would tell her you're out of order. And she mm. actually enjoyed being out of order because she felt that was a more honest way to live. And ultimately, she stepped way out of line by writing in defense of Donald Trump. Oh God, she was a radical's radical. And she supported Donald Trump. How'd that happen? Well, when she was still in South Africa, she started writing about American politics. She would visit us. And in fact, she covered the presidential debate in 2015 here in Los Angeles or in, in uh, Simi Valley at the Reagan Library. Fascinating. The person I knew who predicted Trump would win. And I said to her, why do you think Trump will win? She said, because American politics have become so corrupt that you need someone like Trump to clean it out. So she had that sense because she had an acute sensitivity to corruption and to corrupt political establishments. So she was the first person who said not only that Trump would win, but that America needs Trump to win. And she took that position and she came to this country. She immigrated here. In fact, mm. she about a week before she became a citizen. She was scheduled to take the oath of uh, citizenship on the 25th of April last year, and she died on the 16th. So wait, uh, wait, wait. I want to you know, I'm a guy in. in fascinated by medical stories. How old was she when she passed away? Passed away from uh, lung cancer at the age of 68. She had small cell lung cancer and she never smoked. I was going to ask that. So what was it from? We don't know. We, we really don't know. We actually tested the house for radon. Uh, we don't have radon here. That's a factor in something like 5% of those small cell cases. There's no reason she should have had it. Uh, but they do say a small percentage of these cases just develop spontaneously. In some ways, you could say she was a secondary uh, casualty of COVID because uh. people weren't going to the doctor very often during the shutdowns. And she was feeling not too great for a few months before she finally went to the doctor and, and was was checked out. And even then they, they missed the diagnosis. So did she ever work in it? And this is a crazy question as a youth when she was in her radical leftist days. 
Did she ever work with minors? She was in the wrong part of South Africa for minors, but the the issue of respiratory illness in Cape Town is a serious one. They have a lot of respiratory illnesses there. In fact, tuberculosis is is pretty common in that part of the world because they have cold, wet winters, even though it's Africa and the summers are hot. They have cold, wet winters. But, you know, I, I don't know that those factors played a role. And, you know, we, we just don't know. No, of course, there's a, an element to all disease, as my professor at Berkeley told me when I was always looking for the reason, the answer. He said, Michael, you know, disease is a, or health is a pie of three parts. One is environmental. The other pie, part of the pie is, is genetic. And the third part is the unknown. He said, I've done autopsies on people who've died of heart attacks who had to- totally clear arteries. That freaked me out. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I mean, the unknown of I, disease must be respected. I've, the, the guy who owns the gym that I go to, uh, he, he recently discovered that he has a very serious heart defect that he didn't know about. And this is a guy who looks like, you know, the picture of uh, bodybuilding health. You know, he's, he's in his early 30s and he played college football. He was a defensive. Oh, let's hear it for wimps. Come on. <laughs> Look, uh, we all got to take care of our health. We have to have a little bit of luck and, you know, you know, trust in God and that sort of thing. That's but, right. I pray a lot every day. I say, God, please, just not tonight. Leave me alone, please. Look, let, me, uh, let me get through the night. Look, I don't know how long Trump's health is going to hold out, but I, I tend to think that beyond a certain point, this is the kind of thing that keeps you going. Uh, so maybe that's he dry. likes he likes people attacking him. He thrives on it, like you said earlier. But you know, no man is an island and no man is made of uh, stainless steel. I don't know how much you can take. Let's hope he survives this and thrives on it and escapes the nooses that they're laying for him or the layers and traps that are clearly being laid out all over the map for him to step on, Joel. Well, here's the yeah. they've made, you know, just to bring up South Africa in this context again. South Africa had trials in the anti-apartheid era where the apartheid government would put the civil rights activists on trial in huge numbers, you know, like you see in Cuba still today or Turkey, where they try mass mass trials, trials, right? And that's a mistake the prosecution has made in Georgia, that they've indicted 19 people at once. And they asked the prosecutor, do you intend to put them on trial at once? And she said, yes, she's going to put all 19 on trial at once. Well, when you see 19 people, even if you don't like one or two of them, you see 19 people in the dock at once, you start to understand they're not just going after Trump, they're going after everybody who supported him. And you start to see yourself in that dock. Absolutely. They could arrest half the country, these people. If they could, they would put us in internment camps. It's not even just the lawyers. It's also one of the people who's arrested is a Trump supporter. What? Uh, yeah, this uh, person who used to work for Kanye West as a publicist who went to Georgia to talk to an election worker, believing that there had been fraud and they wanted the election worker to testify. And so they're included in this indictment, as is the person who asked them to go to Georgia. And, and they don't there's no there's no evidence that they were actually connected with the campaign. So it's not even like a full conspiracy where they're alleged to have been involved. You know, they got instructions from Trump to go and do this. But these are Trump supporters who took it on themselves to try to show that there was voter fraud because people were very distraught about the result. And so, you know, they're going to put everybody in the dock. And when Trump says they're only coming after me because I'm the thing that stands between them and you, when you put 19 people, including Trump supporters, on trial. That's the message. So I think they've made a big mistake because they're going to energize Trump supporters to try to oppose this if they can. I just hope enough Trump supporters still trust the vote to show up on Election Day, because that's another problem. 
I'm looking at the Breitbart.com website. You're the, the what, the editor-in-chief? Or what is your title at Breitbart? I was senior editor at large. I was editor-in-chief for a couple of years, 2011 to 2013. And then we did a little musical chairs, which allowed me a little bit more freedom. So I've been editor now for for 10 years. So I I have certain areas I focus on and I do our Sunday evening radio show, but mostly I'm I'm kind of like a free safety. I pick up whatever no one else has time to do. (laughs) So I see an article on your website and I'll let you go. Dershowitz says we're up to four bananas to banana republic after Trump's Georgia indictment. I'm sure you agree with that. Yeah. And it's interesting that he is coming on board. You know, he's a liberal Democrat. He often says he looks forward to having the opportunity to vote against Trump again. Yeah. He is offended by this. You have someone on the other side, like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who he's not speaking out directly about this, but he has said that he opposes the politicization of justice. And everybody knows he's talking about the Department of Justice being weaponized to go after Trump. So there are still a few of these old school, you can call them Kennedy Democrats, who understand that this is not the Democratic Party they signed up for. Unfortunately, in a revolution with a revolutionary party, those are the first people up against the wall. And, you know, they're being ostracized already. You saw how they treated Kennedy. They falsely labeled him with this and that. He's a racist. Oh, yeah, he's, he's fallen out of the, uh, the, the court. He's no longer a, a useful human. Right. So Dershowitz is correct. And. Look, yeah, but he, we, you know, Joel, we see it, we say it, all reasonable people see it and say it. We don't have the power. And when you have the media on the side, on the other side, it doesn't matter what we say. We have no power to alter what they're going to do is what worries me. Well, I'm also worried about it. I'm worried about a lack of faith because I, I got to tell you that this Georgia indi- indictment really bothered me. But actually, you know, I, more than the other four, not because I think it's a strong indictment. I think it's a weak indictment. But because for the first time, I looked at this indictment and I thought, am I next? Because when you look at what's included in the supposed conspiracy tweets, it's statements, speeches. So what they're doing is criminalizing political speech. Correct. So you're afraid that they could nail you to the cross for nothing? I have have friends who are indicted. I mean, I have... uh, Private messages, you know, and I'll probably get a subpoena after saying this, but I have. Don't don't say it. Well, I don't mind because, you know, it's not a surprise. She's been on my radio show. You know, Jenna Ellis, one of Trump's former lawyers. Now, she's turned against Trump. I don't know why. Maybe to save herself. I have no idea. Maybe they'll get her to flip in testimony. Who knows? But the point is, I've known this person. I have private messages with her uh, about inviting her on my Breitbart radio show. You know, am I part of a conspiracy because I interviewed her about her claims about voter fraud? Because that's the kind of thing that they're going for here. You know, so. But what about me? I was on Air Force One with Donald Trump and we shared hot dogs. And he said to me, do you want mustard or ketchup? When I said when I said I'll take uh, mustard, was that a secret signal to him that I don't like ketchup because it's red? Yeah, that's that's it's it's absurd, but that's the (laughs) left. Look, they've, they've indicted people who made a phone call or, or asked for a phone number. So it's it's ridiculous. And look, there's also a, what's left unsaid in this. There's a reign of terror that's gone on. Absolutely. Prosecutors subpoenaing people's uh, private messages like Trump had his Twitter account subpoenaed privately without any knowledge. And others, uh, Devin Nunes, the former head of the House Intelligence Committee under Republicans, he, his phone records were subpoenaed by Adam Schiff during the uh-huh. impeachment. He didn't know. And they looked through Rudy Giuliani's phone calls with Trump when Rudy Giuliani was Trump's lawyer. They're going after anything, and they think they have the right to do this in a country governed by the 
rule of law and the Bill of Rights, and nobody's ever punished them or held them accountable for it. And so it's it's scary. And, and, you know, the media let them get away with it, which is one of the reasons they do it. There's no sense of shame anymore about well, the media is them. I mean, who's running who is the media running them? Or are they running the media? Joel, see, I have to say this. I hold up this old book, The Rock of Ages. Does it give me the faith that we're going to all prevail and survive? I don't know. All I can do is pray at this point because I see no reason in this country anymore. I see no rational reason to think that the looting is going to be stopped, to think that the criminality of the Democrat Party is going to be stopped, to think that suddenly they're going to put a wall or stop the flood of illegal immigrants who are living uh, better than I am in some cases in hope, not better than I, but better than American veterans, some of whom are struggling and they're not being given $400 a night. I don't believe that God's going to step in and, and, and save America. But me, I, me, so I don't know which way to turn anymore, to be honest. I love the story of King David because David is remembered as the greatest king in the history of Israel and the composer of the Psalms and all of that. But if you read the story of King David, especially the second book of Samuel, King David actually loses his throne during his reign. He's chased out by his own son, and he's driven back into exile. Remember, he ran from King Saul when King Saul was trying to kill him so he wouldn't take the throne. Then he's attacked by his own son, who then drives him into exile. And it's a very similar story to what happened to Trump. Suddenly, all of the people and institutions that once were loyal to King David, they turn away from him, and all he's got is a small group of supporters in the wilderness and ultimately, he's able to prevail because he has enough people who stand with him. But that's a model. I mean, that's that's what's happened here. And everything turned against him the way everything has turned against Trump. And David does make a comeback. And in the end, his rebellious son is killed basically because he gets hung by his own hair. You know, he has this he's described as having this luxurious mane of hair that he's very proud of. And uh, he gets hung in a tree riding a horse or a donkey underneath the branches. And then David's soldiers come and they find him there and they kill him. So, you know, the arrogance of these people will be their undoing. They're going to be hung by their own hair. And I think that's the, the model to look for uh, or, to, or to draw inspiration from. It. Which book is that in the Bible? That's the second Samuel, second Samuel book. Yeah. Well, Fantas- I, got, I got some good bathroom reading tonight. I'm joking. I don't, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but you know, I'm a jokester. Second Samuel, second Samuel. Who, who's the first Samuel? Well, the first book is Samuel. It's the same Samuel, but but Samuel is dead for most of the second book of Samuel. It's just that the first and second books of Samuel cover the rise and fall and rise again of King David. Ah, well, I'm going to I'm, really I'm going to read it. I mean, it's actually a good, you should do that as your radio show Sunday night. The raciest story in the Bible, because it involves adultery and all kinds of other things. It's, it's, it's Well, it sounds like Stormy Daniels may have lived at that time as well. Yeah, that's why they don't teach that book to little kids, because it's a little too... Uh, Rated R. Well, the Bible is quite a uh, a document uh, there. Joel Pollack, it's always not only a pleasure of mine, but uh, it's an inspiration for me to see that you're still doing it and you're doing it really great. Thanks very much for being with us today on the Michael Savage podcast. And I've always recommended when I do my raps, I always say, let's start with the only website I really trust, which is Breitbart.com. Joel, thanks a million for fighting the good fight. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate that. And it means a lot to me that you said that. So thanks for having me on. Always glad to come back. Well, we got to support each other. Thanks, Joel. Bye now. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. 
We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.